Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Temple Stollinger. Temple is Associate Professor and Wyoming Excellence Chair at the University of Wyoming, where she has a dual appointment in the Howe School of Environment and Natural Resources and the College of Law. Much of Temple's research is focused on law and policy issues related to wildlife, land, energy, and other natural resources with a focus on Western public lands in the United States. Today, we're going to chat with her about some of her work in progress on the uses of state trust lands and the idea of conservation leasing on those lands. So a lot of our listeners probably know more about federal public lands in the United States. I know I do. And if they're regular listeners to Resources Radio, they might remember an episode from several months ago with John Leshy, in which we talked about his book on the history of federal lands. But I'm guessing uh, most of us know a lot less about state trust lands, where they came from, how they're managed. So I'm going to ask Temple to educate us a little bit about those lands and then talk about this idea of conservation leasing. We're going to talk a little about federal lands, too, because she has some work in that area as well with some colleagues on sort of conservation uses of those lands and some innovative ideas there. So we're going to hear about all of these things today. Stay with us. Hello, Temple. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, Margaret. It's my pleasure to be here. What an honor to be on Resources Radio, uh, where you featured John Leshy a couple months ago. Uh, Yeah, he was great. He was great. If you've listened before, you know that the first thing we do is try to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So Temple, tell us about you. How did you come to focus your research and policy engagement on these issues of Western public lands and natural resources? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, to give you a bit of my background. I actually grew up in Manhattan, Kansas, and my dad was a Parks and Rec professor at Kansas State University. And so we spent our summers visiting as interns at various public lands around the West. And my mom was from Colorado, and so I always felt a deep connection with the West and actually had a chance to transfer to the University of Wyoming to attend both undergraduate and law school here at the University of Wyoming. But my passion really developed when I had a chance to work for a former governor of Wyoming, Dave Friedenthal. And I uh, had a chance to work as a natural resource policy analyst and then a, an advisor to him on natural resources issues and really had a chance to to learn from some of the top public land legal experts in the country in that role. And it really sparked my passion to continue to work on on these subjects. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's cool. And I know you're still really involved in a lot of um, policy issues in the state. So that's great. So I mentioned in my intro, Temple, that most of us probably know more about federal public lands than state lands, and especially state trust lands. So um, can you give us a little history lesson about those lands? How were they created? Where are they? Like, uh, And tell us a little bit about how they're managed. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So state trust lands uh, were actually developed under the Northwest Ordinance of 1785. And through that ordinance, Congress uh, established a policy of granting lands to states upon their statehood as an opportunity for those new states entering the Union to raise funding for public education and other public institutions. Uh, so every state that has entered the Union since Iowa in 1803 has been granted lands from the federal government for the support of public schools. And that practice actually went on until 1910. So the last federal grant of land to states uh, ended in 1910 with Arizona and New Mexico um, receiving state 
trust land grants. And it's interesting, the policy evolved over over the years. So Iowa was actually just given out of every township section 16. Um, and then in, in sort of the middle years of the federal granting of state trust land, states received section two and section 16. But then towards the end of state trust land granting, Arizona and New Mexico actually got four sections of state trust land. So they got two, 16, 32, and 36. So a bit of evolution in terms of how much land states were given. Um, and if those sections were already occupied with settlement, for example, or maybe a federal reservation of some kind, states were given the opportunity to select lands in lieu of. Um, and so that has resulted in some um, different layouts of uh, state trust lands, particularly if you look at the map um, in Arizona and New Mexico to see where state trust lands are located, because those grants of land were, were pretty late in 1910. Yeah, those section numbers, Temple, those are particular locations in the state, just to clarify that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, states um, are divided into what we call townships. And with each individual township, um, we have sections ranging from section one all the way to section 36. And it's just a way of thinking about how to divide and identify land on ordinance maps. Yeah, okay. So uh, tell us how they're managed. How do states... Um, uh, manage those lands. And I assume you said they're for schools and other public uses, so they're getting revenues from them. So tell us a little bit about those things. Yeah, exactly. They they can be considered a, a type of public land um, in some aspects, um, but in other ways, they're, they're pretty unique from federal public lands that, that we're used to thinking about. Um, and that's because they're encumbered with a fiduciary duty to manage those lands to generate revenue um, for the public schools and for other uh, public beneficiaries. And so, and so that's different from the um, multiple use management requirement that like Forest Service land or BLM land is managed under. So that, so that is not true with regards to state trust lands. It doesn't have a multiple use management requirement. Instead, it's really governed by this idea of a fiduciary duty and the, the need to generate revenue for beneficiaries, primarily the public schools within Western states. Right. And so are they getting most of their revenues from sort of energy leasing or where, where are the revenues coming from? Yeah, it really depends on, on each state. Um, uh, oil and gas leasing is uh, particularly high in states like New Mexico and Wyoming, for example. In states like Arizona, we see more uh, land sales and commercial land leasing being the highest revenue opportunities. Um, and then if you look to states along the West Coast, like Oregon and Washington, we actually see timber harvesting um, bringing in a lot of revenue as well. And and there's always a, you know, sort of a bread and butter of uh, grazing leasing in a lot of these Western states as well of state trust lands that brings in some revenue. Yeah. Okay. That, so it's a wide range of things. So you mentioned the sort of spatial or geographic pattern, and I know it's a checkerboard pattern in most of the states. And I've seen you and your work refer to it as the blue rash because of how it shows up on the certain maps of the federal government. So tell us how that checkerboard kind of came about. What are some of the implications of it? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, the blue rash is an interesting way to think about state trust lands. And it's also interesting to think about them as sort of an accident of history because they really just were granted on those section numbers. And so the fact that there's assets on those sections that were granted is really sort of an accident. It wasn't necessarily intentional. Um, and so as a result, state trust land portfolios are not very well diversified because we still see the land use pattern representing those those original grants of land. Um, so unlike federal land holdings, which cover large contiguous areas, 
State trust land parcels are often, as you noted, in a checkerboard pattern, and they're often interspersed with other private lands and even other types of federal lands. Um, so that does result then in that checkerboard pattern in a sort of scattering of state trust lands across a landscape. Um, so Montana, for example, has 52 million acres of state trust lands, but that land is actually divided into 16,000 individual parcels. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot. Um, so I read in your draft paper that um, it turns out that kind of checkerboard has provided some opportunities for conservation and habitat. Can you talk about that a little bit? Explain why that is? Yeah, and I and that largely stems back to that initial scattered placement of state trust lands um, because of its its pattern and its um, and its accidental history. Um, you know, a lot of those sections of land haven't been well developed, and that you know maybe had negative economic impacts for states to start, but but maybe that's actually providing an opportunity now because we still see a lot of. Um, uh, original land cover on these lands, uh, grasses or timber land cover, um, which has and can continue to provide habitat because it is still in an undeveloped state. Yeah, yeah. So let's pivot to that, uh, those values a little bit. And let me ask you specifically um, about conservation leasing, which is the topic you've been thinking about and, and, and how that comes into play. What, what's happening with the value for conservation on these lands? I think it might be kind of going up recently. Maybe you could provide some examples of some of these, what these values are, like what's happening on the lands that uh, makes them have value and why the value seems to be kind of going up these days. Yeah, we're seeing a, you know, a kind of a general shift, particularly in the West with more opportunities for economic development through things like conservation, recreation, and tourism. And so as that economy is increasing, um, people are looking to all types of land in the West and state trust lands are among those types of land assets that are being considered. Um, and so we are seeing expansions of recreational opportunities on state trust lands. But then also as we you know, think about preserving wildlife habitat um, and some of the opportunities that are available now to think about how to fund habitat conservation, state trust lands are also getting kind of a, a stronger look as well um, in that regard as we're learning more about you know, sort of the value of migration habitat for ungulates and other types of species. Um, and we're thinking about uh, preserving open space to address landscape changes as a result of climate change. Um, so state trust lands are, are getting a bit of a, uh, a refreshed look in terms of conservation value, like, like many areas of land in the West. Right, right. Well, how would conservation leasing work? Tell us about that. And is it happening at all right now? Is it you have different outcomes across states? Is it happening or what are there barriers to it or what? Yeah, it is already happening. So in this draft paper that we're working on, we're actually trying to uh, present a taxonomy of state conservation leasing options because it's taking different forms in different states. Um, so you have traditional conservation leasing, um, which is, uh, I, I think there's a couple of ways to think about how a conservation lease could be let. It could be direct participation in an existing resource commodity market. So for example, people with a conservation interest could bid on an oil and gas lease in a competitive oil and gas market. Um, or uh, other states are looking at sort of separate non-competitive leasing opportunities for lands with conservation value. Uh, we've also seen states explore stewardship programs, um, where if you are, for example, grazing cattle, but you're doing some additional land 
conservation work on top of your grazing lease, there's some opportunities for either reduced grazing costs or some um, funding opportunities for that uh, conservation work. Um, we're also seeing states start to explore this idea of ecosystem service leasing for state trust lands. Um, other states have leased their state lands to other agencies within their state. So, for example, maybe um, the state lands office would lease a section of land to a, to a game and fish office to preserve some critical wildlife habitat, or maybe to the state parks office to develop some new recreational assets. Um, we're also seeing some states explore the idea of a conservation easement on state trust land. Um, and then we see sort of a catch-all um, in the form of sort of a special use lease um, that's designated for conservation purposes. Um, and then we also see land exchanges and sales as well um, with conservation-oriented buyers. So a pretty full range of what state conservation leasing options there are, conservation sales and leasing options uh, that are being implemented across, across uh, states currently. Right. And I'm interested then if they have this fiduciary responsibility and they need to raise the revenues. Um, I assume some of those options are bring in revenues and some of them maybe not so much, right? Do they think about that kind of thing when they're choosing what to do? So for example, you mentioned that they might lease the lands. It might go from being a state trust land to a state park or something. And I would I don't know, I guess you could charge entrance fees to a state park, but you're probably not a big revenue raiser, where some others might be more. I mean, how does how does the revenue aspect kind of play into the decision making? Yeah, I think if they were to lease to, for example, state park, uh, the lease rate would be based upon fair market value to begin with. And then maybe there could be opportunities for a percentage of entrance fees um, to come back to state parks. But at, at the baseline, the original lease would likely need to be um, at market value. Uh, and if not, then, you know, the, the beneficiaries of, of that trust would have the opportunity to, to complain or to litigate to enforce that fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it varies across states. Are there some states where there's some barrier, more of a barrier to this than others? Maybe some of the states that do have more oil and gas or what's the story there? Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely correct. Um, there are, in, in our estimation, both, both legal barriers and policy barriers. So on the legal front, um, and we've, we've tried to assess sort of the legal framework with regards to state lands for the nine major Western states. And um, if there are legal barriers to conservation leasing, they usually look like a use it or lose it requirement, which is also called the forfeiture doctrine, which means if you're, if you are, for example, participating in a traditional oil and gas market and you intend to buy for conservation use and, and you're not intending to develop the oil and gas resources, you're sort of violating that agreement that you had with the state to to drill for oil and gas development. And that's um, partially based on the fact that there is value associated with buying a lease for oil and gas uh, development, for example, but the majority of the money that would come back to the state from an oil and gas lease is actually through the revenue generated from the royalties from the produced oil and gas development. And so, so that presents an area where I think there needs to be additional studies to thinking about how to how the pricing structure for conservation leases would work, knowing that um, there's both the lease value with regards to oil and gas leasing, but really it's the royalty revenue um, that we need to be looking at in terms of um, what traditional leases are bringing back to the state and to the to the beneficiaries. Um, then on the policy barrier side, so that's the legal barrier side, but on the policy barrier side. 
Uh, you know, there are concerns from existing resource users, for sure, about additional people entering a market. There's also concerns from a broader set of stakeholders that can include communities and also those who benefit from the existing pattern of use. So think about some of the suppliers kind of in, in, in the communities that depend upon selling goods to those in the traditional market. Um, and then there there may even be opposition from conservationists themselves who may object to a market-oriented approach and who may be adverse to paying for conservation on state trust lands and wonder about the additionality if that land isn't already being developed, if there is a need to to pay for conservation, if that's already happening. I didn't think about that last point, but that's a good one. And so people, maybe you should tell people what, what you mean by additionality. I know what you mean, but like, uh, can you say a bit more about that issue? Sure. And, and you're the economist, Margaret, not me. So you may have to help me out here as a legal scholar. It's an it's a economics term, but basically it just means if the land is already being conserved without having to bid for a conservation lease, what's the point in bidding and expending money? Are you really adding any conservation value because it is already being being conserved? And so I guess then maybe you would just jump into that market if you felt like there was a threat to that existing status quo of conservation. Yeah. But the whole fiduciary responsibility thing kind of layers over that, too. So it, that's an interesting issue, I feel like. Um, let me switch to federal lands for a bit. And I want to ask you about a paper you have on on uh, conservation on federal grazing lands. But first, I want to ask you about um, clarify what the rules are for oil and gas leasing on Bureau of Land Management lands in terms of I, I feel like I, I know a little bit about people have tried to bid on those leases and then not drill. And that is a no-no on BLM lands, I believe. Is that right? Or what are the rules on federal lands? Yeah, that is correct. Um, and the the example that comes to my mind is um, when Terry Tempest Williams bid on a oil and gas lease parcel in, in Utah on federal BLM land and was a successful um, was the highest bidder on that particular parcel, so was successful in that sense, but had disclosed her intention not to develop um, that parcel for oil and gas development. So the BLM sent a cancellation letter that was based upon language in the Mineral Leasing Act that includes that use it or lose it language, um, or that forfeiture doctrine, which is if you don't have the intent to develop, um, then then you can't legally hold um, a federal oil and gas lease. Mm-hmm. Have they talked about changing that at all, or is that just going to be that would require Congress to act? I guess is that right? Yeah, that would require Congress to act, and that's a you know a statute that's been in place you know for a long time, and so um, probably very unlikely that we would see changes to the Mineral Leasing Act. Well, that brings up the grazing lands. So I know you have a law review paper with some colleagues that looks like conservation on federal grazing lands, and some of our federal lands are used for livestock grazing, and you just told us state lands too, but um, so maybe you can kind of start by explaining that to folks. Um, but you looked at and found some voluntary conservation options. So maybe you can then tell us about that as well. Yeah, the, the number one use of public lands is is for livestock grazing, so cattle or sheep. Um, and so this is largely governed under the Taylor Grazing Act and the Federal Lands Policy and Management Act, or FLIPMA. Um, and so uh, there are requirements, particularly under the Tailing Grazing Act, if you're going to hold a grazing lease, let's say on Forest Service land, same applies to Bureau of Land Management land as well. Uh, but if you're going to hold a, a grazing lease, it has the same use it or lose it requirement. So you have to have 
the number of livestock out on the landscape grazing that your permit allows you to. And if you actually put less than that number out, uh, the Forest Service or the, the BLM could grant a, an additional lease on top of your lease to somebody else who would fulfill that quota for the landscaped. Um, and so this paper um, looked at a, at a couple of things, thinking about how to create some more flexibility in the grazing, the federal grazing landscape. Uh, and the first would be, you know, thinking about opportunities for voluntary buyout if there's, let's say, carnivore conflict in a particular area. Um, so uh, uh, the grazing lessee on federal land um, would, would, in that situation, voluntarily um, take a buyout payment from a conservation buyer um, to stop grazing that particular piece of land. Or it could be an environmental concern. And so maybe there's a conservation group who would pay, again, an, a voluntary livestock lessee to uh, to have less livestock on the landscape to reduce some of the environmental impact, um, maybe in a particularly sensitive area. But the concern with, with both of those is, um, is, is one, that lose it or use it requirement, and then just the temporary um, nature with regards to buyout. So the fact that one lessee takes a buyout doesn't mean the Forest Service or the BLM could then turn around and lease to somebody else. Um, they could create a little bit more permanency by closing an area to leasing, to grazing leasing in a land management plan, but that plan is is reversible by future administrations. So not a lot of durability around um, grazing buyouts. And so that particular paper talked about some and we were particularly excited to find some regulatory opportunities to add some more durability to voluntary grazing buyouts because I just noted with the with the Mineral Leasing Act, it's unlikely that we'll see revisions to statutes in these spaces. To, so to the extent there's opportunity from some regulatory form, um, I think that then we have more likelihood of, of pursuing um, creative opportunities like voluntary grazing buyouts. Yeah. So are, um, just to clarify, are there some of these going on now or not? Or is this with just a proposed view of? Oh, no, happen? there definitely are grazing, voluntary grazing buyouts happening in, in many Western states. And and some of them have actually been accompanied with federal statutes for specific areas. So, for example, if there's a wilderness area designated, the statute designated that wilderness area may say if there are voluntary grazing buyouts, then that grazing land will be permanently withdrawn from grazing. So there's a, a pretty wide variety of how voluntary grazing retirements are occurring on federal public lands, but still limited. And so this article looks at opportunities for expanding expanding those opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So, well, just in general, then following up on that and also with these state trust lands, and maybe there's some differences you want to highlight between state and federal, but what do you think we really need to kind of move forward with conservation leasing and these other similar kinds of approaches that could use these lands in kind of alternative, less extractive, maybe more conservation-friendly ways? Yeah, I think this is a great space for some additional research and particularly some interdisciplinary research that includes lawyers and economists and and, and social scientists um, and probably ecologists as well, just raising awareness to the opportunity, but also thinking through some of the the sticky policy and legal issues we know exist, thinking about how to address community impacts, you know, thinking about that pricing structure, particularly as we think if if there are competitive uh, lease markets with existing traditional users. How do you think about bringing in similar revenue to what oil and gas royalties pay? Thinking about attainment of management goals, like opportunities where livestock are utilized to help reduce fire risk. If an area is then conserved, how do we still address some of those management goals? 
also thinking through concerns about speculation. And then also that point I was mentioning about additionality and willingness of conservation communities to pay. Um, and then I think in general, it would just be great to do some analysis to start to think about how much revenue could be generated and share that information with states and stakeholders um, so they can start to think about this as an additional tool in the toolbox. Right, right. I, I'm sort of throwing this question out of left field a little bit. It's just occurring to me that another use of, of public land, state or federal, is probably renewable energy as we move away from um, fossil fuels in this country. And is that another use of these lands? Is there any conflict there? I know there are conflicts with conservation in some places with renewable energy projects, but is what's going on in that regard? Is there anything that you know about there? Yeah, there definitely is um, leasing of state trust lands for renewable energy. And there was a great paper, I can't remember exactly who wrote it, who sort of analyzed renewable energy leasing across sort of the major state trust land states and and talked about how that opportunity was expanding. And through our research, you know, we pointed to New Mexico as a, as a state who's really increased revenue generation on state trust lands. And part of that increase in portfolio has been um, uh, kind of a focus on renewable energy, and they have raised some pretty significant capital around renewable energy development on state trust lands. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, tough decisions about what to do exactly, isn't it? It's a complex web of of uh, values and costs to consider. It is, and that's why state trust lands, I think, is such an interesting place to start to think about conservation leasing um, because of that fiduciary requirement, that fiduciary duty. Um, and then just thinking about, again, you were noting at the beginning of the interview how not a lot of people think about state trust lands. But if we were to combine all of the state land assets, um, in, in fact, 30 states have state trust lands, but the majority are focused in the nine Western states. But that all of those state trust lands across the 30 states would make up a land mass that's double to the holdings of the National Park Service and actually rivals that of the Forest Service. So this is a lot of land that we're talking oh, wow. about. Well, Temple, thank you. I'm, we, we always close our podcast with a regular feature called Top of the Stack. And you know I'm going to ask you this, um, but we always ask our guests to recommend something to listeners, a book, a podcast, an article, anything really that might have caught your attention lately. So Temple, what's on the top of your stack? Yeah, great. I actually have two books that are on my bedside table right now I thought I'd share. Uh, the first is a book that my book club is reading. It's called Stolen by Anne Helen uh, Lastidious. She's a Swedish uh, novelist, and her story follows a young Sami girl um, as she struggles to defend her family's reindeer herd and her Sami culture. So that's been a really fun book to dig into. And the second book I'm reading uh, right now is a book by... Ben Goldfarb, who's an environmental journalist, um, and he wrote this terrific book called Eager, The Surprising and Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And I didn't expect to like this book as much as I do, but it's just a really interesting story about how we eradicated beavers off the landscape in the U.S. and the ecological implications that follow. Um, and just a compelling story for the reintroduction of beavers back on the landscape and how sort of an unlikely bedfellow of people are advocating for beaver restoration, including um, environmentalists, but also ranchers as well, because they see it as an opportunity to restore riparian areas and actually add some water storage onto their landscape. Uh, that's great. I, I, I've got to look that book up. That sounds really interesting. Uh, thank you so much, Temple. It's been really a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. I'm so glad we were able to have you on to educate our listeners about public plans that they might not know as much about. 
state trust lands and just this whole idea of using those lands for conservation purposes. Um, So thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. It was my pleasure, Margaret. Thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.